Welcome to season three of the Change the World podcast. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. As CEO of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that works exclusively with Jewish nonprofits, I am a firsthand witness to the incredible physical, spiritual, and emotional services these organizations provide to our community. However, I also see the many challenges they face along the way. This season, I'll be speaking to incredible nonprofit leaders who haven't let any obstacles get in the way of their mission to change the world. Hi, thanks for joining. Uh, Today I'm with Dina Rabhan, who is a strategist and creative consultant with expertise in media, education, nonprofits, leadership, and mental health. That's that's a lot of expertise, so I'm really excited. Dina works with small, medium businesses and startups in the for-profit and nonprofit sector by building innovative strategies while optimizing their culture, people, processes, and anything related to media. Dina is also an advisor on not one, but two startup boards, the senior strategic advisor for a new charitable trust and is an executive producer for a new documentary film called Uncharitable. Wow, I'm tired just reading that. That was like, that's a lot for one person. That's like 10 people's career. So um, I'm really humbled and honored to be here with you, Dina. Um, So that was just an overview, but tell us from you, I'd love to hear about your background, how you got started, how you got into this. I think it'd be so much greater to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And thanks for not taking a breath during my (laughs) bio, which makes it sound more impressive when you say it all in one breath. I'm a lifer nonprofit professional, so I've done a lot of different things. And what I like to tell everybody is that without starting with, I was born in Brooklyn, (laughs) I too like to say that my childhood plays a really important role in the decisions that I've made and how I spend my life because I was raised by both parents and in a community that had incredibly strong Jewish values, like the best of our values, acts of kindness, compassion, pursuit of justice and truth, self-sacrifice and giving, helping people who have less and who are less privileged. And I was taught not only to live those values as a Jew, and not only to love those values, but also to lead with those values. And it really inspired me to choose the path of nonprofit. Even though my parents, none of them were in nonprofit, they took us to the marches to free Soviet jury, to those of you who are old enough to remember that. And they fought battles that nobody thought that they could win, and they were all lifelong learners. And having that kind of ingredients in my upbringing and in building who I am really inspired me and made me believe that I can actually make a difference in our world because they made us believe that. And it pushed me into nonprofit, and I have done, like you just read out many different things. I started in education. I married a rabbi. So we were community builders and the natural progression when you're involved in community building. My next path was around mental health and getting trained in mental health so that we could really support our community members better. And then I went back into education and I landed in a nonprofit that I turned around and turned into a small flourishing media company. And that's where I last left. And from there, I've been doing nonprofit consulting, but also small medium business consulting because all of the principles 
of running a nonprofit, as you know, because I, I read your LinkedIn posts, are uh, applicable also in the business sector. There really is no difference. And that's, and that's my background. Wow. So I'm curious about the media company. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So I, I joined a small nonprofit that was involved in Israel education and Jewish education. And I, I recognized soon after joining that it needed to be updated in its approach toward reaching the audiences that it was trying to reach. And even though I had a mental health background and an education background, I soon and quickly immersed myself into the world of media, of which the Jewish community was not super advanced in that. And so I had to immerse myself and surround myself and really find wherever I could everything across the media landscape, which is massive. And I really had to teach myself what was going on, what was up and what was down. And it was really, really exciting. And I have to say, it lit a fire in me that I didn't realize that I even had, which is, you know, I, how does somebody who starts out as an educator end up somebody who's obsessed with media, storytelling, and marketing? And I think that, you know, when you believe that you can support people's curiosity and cultivate their empathy through education, I recognized quickly that effective storytelling, long form, short form, is equally, if not more powerful as an educational tool. And I was really, really fired up about that. And it's why even having left that position in a media company, I still continue to pursue it as a uh, major part of my portfolio of work. I believe in storytelling as a way to make our world a better place and to make all of us as human beings better. Wow. I love that. That's really, really, um, I think, unique as a kind of career trajectory yeah. to land up in that. But I, I, that's part of what I just find so amazing about your experience. But um, so let's kind of dive into the topic at hand, which is the fact that um, I met Dina briefly at a screening for a documentary that she's involved in. Uh, Dan Pilata, if anybody listening to this does not know who Dan Pilata is, put this podcast on pause. Go Google right now. Dan is absolutely the nonprofit thought leader of our generation. His books, Charitable and Charity Case, are really, really life-changing for the nonprofit sector. So Dina got involved with Dan's documentary, and I was there for a screening, and I was just really blown away, and I said, I need to speak to Dina about this. There's, like, there's just so much we can talk about. But first, I want to ask, how did you even get involved with that? Well, thanks for asking, and thanks for coming to the event, our private exclusive before pre-release screening, you know, after 25 years of being in the nonprofit sector, when I left my last position, I was both frustrated and fired up. I was frustrated because I saw the scarcity mindset and the limitations that nonprofits struggled with. There were just so many limitations being imposed upon nonprofits in a way that was preventing so many people from really getting the jobs done really fulfilling the promises that they were that they made about doing the good work that they were trying to do and i was also fired up about the potential to use media and storytelling to change that and so i basically started messaging dan because like i don't know if this was the first time 
you did you know of Dan before the movie? Had you been? Yes, I read his. I first um, stumbled upon his 2013 TED Talk. Yes, and then I watched it so many times I memorized it, and yes. it kind of really it kind of set me on the trajectory of the kind of work that I wanted to do with my marketing agency. And then I read his books, and then I just became a lifelong fan. Okay, so the same, really the same. Like I was introduced to him also, you know, right after he had published his TED Talk. It was transformative as as his message and ideas are for most people who are first exposed. It's kind of like you watch people's brains go because it's incredible how he just changes how you think about things. And so when I'm all excited that you know, wow, I want to figure out how I can change the nonprofit sector. What can I do? I want to use media. Who's the right person to partner with? Of course, my mind went immediately to Dan, but I didn't have a relationship with him. So I just used my social media. And I don't want to use the word stalk because that would sound nefarious, but I definitely persisted and sent him my deck about my ideas. And eventually he responded and said, listen, this looks great, but I'm involved in this film project right now. Let me introduce you to the director, Stephen Gyllenhaal, and let's see how we can bring you on board on the team. And that was kind of the beginning. I I reached out to Stephen and Stephen was really curious and open. I think he was super surprised. You know, I'm an Orthodox Jewish woman with a large family. He wasn't used to working with people like that. And we have become fast, fast, really good friends. And they brought me onto the project. It's been for about a year now where the film has been in editing and now post-production. And we're on the last leg of fundraising because this has been a nonprofit endeavor entirely. And so we're on the last leg of fundraising to be able to hopefully premiere the film early 2023. And what was your, did you get an official role in the production of it? So I'm an executive producer and just providing marketing and creative support, fundraising support, which is really a key piece of this. And I should say that it's really a passion project. I do it in addition to all of the other work that I do. And I do it for the reasons why it inspired you, right? I do it because I believe so passionately in this message and believe so thoroughly in making sure that this message can get out to the world. So for anybody who's not familiar with Dan's basis of his thought leadership around this topic, he has identified five main areas where nonprofits are at a tremendous disadvantage as compared to the corporate world. So would you mind, can you summarize those five areas for anyone who may not be familiar? Sure. I did my homework. And basically, while both of us recommend everybody checking out the TED Talk, Dan talks about that there are two separate rule books for the nonprofits versus the for-profit business sector. And he said, the rule books are discriminatory against the nonprofit sector in five different ways. Number one, compensation. Number two, advertising and marketing. Number three, uh, taking risks in the pursuit of new ideas and for innovation. Number four, time. And number five, actual profit, being able to leverage the stock markets, et cetera. So I'm going to go back and just give like a little explanation of each of these five 
discriminatory practices for the nonprofit sector. Number one is compensation. I think that most people understand this without a lot of explanation. But Dan explains in, in his eloquent and passionate way that it's really hard to incentivize people to want to go into nonprofit if they believe that they will never be able to support their families and the lifestyle that they would like and be fairly compensated for their outputs, that there will be expectations to take a vow of poverty or just a vow of sacrifice and living with less. And so right away, you're dividing people on this line of, are you prepared to give up your salary range, your your salary potential versus not? Advertising and marketing, that's your specialty. So you know all about this, right? Like people make expect, they, they say to the nonprofit world, all right, like you want to spend money on quote unquote, your advertising marketing, which we're going to include in your overhead because it's not actually for your service, your delivery of service. It's really denigrated and considered not as essential as the actual work itself. And therefore, instead of looking at advertising and marketing as the primary way to grow your audience, your brand, and eventually your fundraising capacity, nonprofits are held to different standards as opposed to the business sector, which is told, spend every last dollar if it can make you dollars. Just keep spending if it can generate more dollars. Taking risk in pursuit of new ideas and generating innovation, nonprofits, if they take risks and they fail, which is obviously what happens sometimes with taking risks, they are held to different standards. And people, if you do a fundraising activity and it's a riskier one, so you invest a little bit more in it and you think it's going to generate really good results. And for whatever reason, you miscalculated and it didn't generate what you had anticipated. You will be excoriated, you know, for doing that and wasting that money as opposed to the business sector, which has the latitude to take those risks. And people understand that that's just part of business. You take the risks. Time. This one is so, so critical because I see the, and, I, and I've been on it, the, the hamster wheel of just having to produce, 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 and, and prove your worthiness that, that you can exist. And we're, nonprofits are not given the time sometimes to build their infrastructure, to build their capacity to be able to create that impact. They are held to a different standard, whereas the business sector, when you, I follow tons of, I love following all of tech and startups and anything related to business. And you see how sometimes profits don't even start till years, a decade and people understand you have a runway for that. There's there's no runway given to nonprofits, literally no runway. And finally, profit, like I said earlier, is the business sector has the opportunity to access capital to grow and to achieve incredible results. And there really is no profit incentive in nonprofits. And so they're really limited into how to get people to invest and and to have that kind of capital to do the work that they want to be able to accomplish. Thank you. That was a great summary. And I think that, you know, both of us having worked with nonprofits have seen this happen firsthand and 
our, our hands are tied because like it's so clear to us what's going wrong and there's just really not that much to be done. But I, I, I would love to kind of talk about soon what maybe we can do. But before that, before we go ahead with that, so, so Dan is um, talking in a very general sense and he's talking about some of the huge nonprofit organizations out there. Um, so I'd like to bring it down because you and I are Orthodox Jewish women and we work with, you know, we do work with the Orthodox community. So I'm curious to hear from you. Do you feel that these five areas of concern apply equally or disproportionately, um, you know, on the, end, the other end of the spectrum to the Orthodox Jewish nonprofits? It, it, are there differences as they apply here? Honestly, I don't think so. I think that we're in the same space as the general nonprofit sector. I think that these are deep-seated beliefs about how to treat the nonprofit sector. I think that Dan's ideas and messages and all of the books that he's written are as relevant and applicable to the Orthodox Jewish community as they are anywhere else. And I don't say that to be, I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm saying that to be a realist and we need to identify our challenges if we're going to try to solve them. And I, I really don't see any difference. I see that in general, there is a, there are belief systems around how nonprofits should operate, what they should look like, and all of these five different categories. And that belief system crosses faith communities equally. So I actually want to put something out there. This is just kind of a hypothesis. I, I do agree with you. I think that it's it's pretty much equal. And in some cases, maybe even just a little bit exacerbated by the size and the limitations of the size of the Orthodox Jewish community as, as a whole. I think there's a six that applies to the Jewish community. And I actually just did an episode, a podcast episode on, on this topic that's going to be coming out right before this one. Um, and that is that I think that Orthodox Jewish nonprofits are limited with their obsession with privacy. And I don't see this being something that the greater nonprofit community deals with. I think that all other nonprofits can put their recipients and their members front and center and market them if they choose to do so, whether they spend on the marketing or not. Whereas the Orthodox community is just like, we can't talk about them. We can't show them. No one wants to know. It has to be private, has to be confidentiality through and through so much so that no one even really knows what these nonprofits are doing. So I just want to put that out there as as a theory, as someone who is trying to be a marketer in the Orthodox um, Jewish community world of nonprofits and is faced consistently with like, we can't actually show anybody what the product is. Like we just have to sort of vaguely reference it and hope that people believe us that we are impacting the world. So this is my theory. This is something that I personally have kind of like taken on the the mantle of like, I, I want to get this out there. So I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on that? First of all, I find that really interesting. And I have some questions that I'd like to probe a little bit about that. Are these nonprofits that are dealing with particularly delicate issues, you know, around, is it that the privacy of their clients or the privacy that the issue exists in the Orthodox community? What What is it? What are the concerns? Is it that they can't put the faces of their clients because if it's around food insecurity or abuse or educational challenges or disabilities that people don't want their face or their name or anything to be associated with it? And so they're limited in how they can portray the actual clients that they serve? Or is it that they don't want 
to emphasize that that the Orthodox community has these needs? Which one? I, I think it's definitely all of the above. Most nonprofits, besides the ones that are, let's say, just educational institutions, but most service-based nonprofits are dealing with a vulnerable population at some in some capacity. And in my experience, Orthodox Jews don't do vulnerability very well because... I mean, there's there's general, I guess it's the, the more right wing you go, the more of the, of the fear around shadokim there is of like people can't know and stigma and shame around needing help, whether it's in, you know, for financial reasons or mental health reasons or somebody was diagnosed with an illness, like things are hush hush. And it, it's very deeply rooted, I think, because of the whole idea of Ayan Hara, right? Like we don't talk about the good things either. So there's this deeply rooted fear of like people can't know what's going on and we have to hide our vulnerabilities and we have to hide the fact that we may need help and we, we don't want to talk about it. So I think that kind of has traveled up to the to the leaders of the nonprofits where they feel that they have to be so conscious of this because they're afraid people won't come to them for help if they think their confidentiality might be at risk. So it becomes like deeply rooted within the organization, this whole idea of privacy to the point where they don't even realize that they're not actually sharing. And I think this, you know, on top of these other disadvantages that all nonprofits have, this puts them at another tremendous disadvantage because then they're like, well, people don't really understand what we do. So when we come for support, they're not taking us seriously enough or they're not giving us gifts that really match the level of what we're doing. And if you look back at it, it's because, yeah, you're not actually promoting the work that you're doing. It's all this like really one big secret. And I think they, they, they're proud of that. You know, it's like, oh, nobody really knows. But that's it's, it's very not helpful in the big picture because there are a lot of people who may need help that don't know to reach out because there is no publicity surrounding the work. It's so fascinating. I never thought about it. It makes sense because we're such a small insular, wherever you are on the spectrum, right? On the spectrum of, of Orthodox Judaism and the Jewish community in general. Like we're just a tiny, tiny population. And we haven't done this yet, but if we started probably in three minutes, we would find a common cousin or friend like that, right? Because we're all two degrees separated and it doesn't even matter like which denomination. It's like if you're part of the tribe or adjacent even to the tribe, we'll be able to figure out how we know people in common. So I think that it makes a lot of sense why the concerns of privacy are that much more magnified in in our community because we're so tiny. And so the opportunities to reveal things that people don't want to reveal and also the concern, like you said, the concern of perception, you know, of, of what our needs are. I think I really understand it. And I hear from you as a marketing professional and all of the knowledge and expertise that you have in what it means to build brand awareness, right? Building brand awareness. I tell everybody there's like the big difference between performance marketing and branding, right? Performance marketing is like how many clicks, how many ads, it's the data-driven, very specific, how many sales you know you can make. Branding is you have to become ubiquitous. You have to become part of the air that people breathe. It's much harder to measure in concrete terms, but it's so essential so that you're, rec- you're recognizable 
brand. And so nonprofits really, if they want to do their marketing right, they should be doing both. They should be doing performance marketing, which is like targeting people on Facebook and whatever, however else they're going to, whichever platforms they're choosing. But they also should be doing the branding, which requires a high degree of visibility in our insular and more fearful and private community. And I never, I didn't really think about it because the nonprofit work, not all of it, but a lot of the nonprofit work that I've been involved in have, has been less sensitive in nature. And so not all of it, actually, I was involved in trauma and abuse. So that's very sensitive in nature, but that is a challenge. I hear that challenge. And it's, it's actually interesting because the movie focuses, people say to me, who's the movie for? Who should be watching the movie? Oh, I'm, at, I'm curious what you think. What do you think? Well, before I saw it, I would have said, you know, people in the nonprofit space. But once I saw it, I was like, everyone needs to see this. Every single person who's ever gave a dollar to a nonprofit or taken a dollar from a nonprofit is really affected by this. This is, it's a society-wide problem. So yeah, it really does apply to the entire world. But I guess as someone who has worked with nonprofits, I was particularly like fired up when I walked out of that screening and I was like, we have to do something. Like, what are we doing about this? Right. It is about changing mindset. People ask me, especially because you're a marketer and I'm involved in marketing, we both understand how critical it is to define your demographic, to define your audience when you're looking to distribute content or achieve any kind of meaningful results, you really can't just say, this is for everybody, <laughs> because <laughs> it's really impossible to market that way. And yet, and yet, this film, when I speak with people and they say, well, who do you hope will see this film? I understand that the marketing for this film will have to be segmented, because it really is for everybody, because it's for the nonprofits themselves who what you're describing, a nonprofit adding on this challenge of privacy, uh, of being afraid of branding too publicly and all of that, that's why a movie like this is important for the nonprofit professionals also, because they should be inspired to see that they have this incredible untapped potential. And sometimes nonprofit professionals internalize the scarcity mindset that they receive and are confronted with regularly by everybody else outside of the nonprofit sector. So the film is for the nonprofit sector to feel that passion and confidence in saying, no, I'm, I am going to pay my people competitively because I understand that that is essential in the work that we're doing. And we want philanthropists to see the film so that they think very differently about how they give their gifts. I was just at a an event for donors and someone from the Ford Foundation was there and she said that up until recently the Ford Foundation was giving annual grants. So every year people had to reapply for grants. And now they are giving much uh, longer grants, capacity building grants. Like they've really changed how they work and partner with their grantees. And so we want foundations to watch this. We want philanthropists to watch this. And we want the everyday person who gives a dollar a day, 
or gives on Giving Tuesday coming up, or they give their 10% that we're, you know, our, our tradition tells us that we're supposed to give. Even if they're not major donors, we want people to see what this should be about. Also because part of the movie talks about how the journalists often will put forward these negative messages around spending and they'll take down nonprofits. You know, they'll look at nonprofits and say, oh, how come they're spending on overhead? And the only way that there is oxygen for those kinds of stories are from regular people who haven't heard Dan Pallada's message. So, you know, it really is applicable to everybody, but based on your question about, do you think that it's harder in the Orthodox community? I think that this movie specifically for nonprofits in the Orthodox community would be really empowering and validating. Absolutely. I, I think you, you said that really, really eloquently. I actually think, I know that this is something that Dan, it, it sounded like he's been working on for a long time. I think that the timing of it is just so, it's really perfect for, for two reasons. Number one, I think COVID was a real wake-up call for nonprofits. Like, they were forced for the first time ever to do things differently. Nonprofits are notoriously bad at that. It's like rinse, repeat. We did it last year. We did it 10 years ago. Like, we're just going to do it again. And COVID really shook that up and it opened them up to just thinking differently. And in turn, the people that support them and the people that are their, their recipients had to think differently. So I think from that perspective, the timing is, is just really fortuitous. And then this is a, a more broad sense of timing, but I'm getting the sense that, and I hate using the word millennials because it just feels like such a cliche marketing. Are you a millennial? I am a millennial very much, but I, I think that we're, we're in the middle of watching the shift of seeing the millennials take over the mantle of running the nonprofits. They're slowly but surely, the older board members and the older executive directors are stepping down. And the millennial generation, from the, the research that I've done about millennials and how they view philanthropy and how they give, it's there's a huge difference. There's, there's just a lot of shifts in the way they view giving and the involvement that they want to have. And I think the opportunity is really there now for major shifts to happen now that there's kind of a, you know, the new sheriff in town. And I think this is going to probably take another good decade or so to really take into effect. But the time to get the message out there is really now because you, we don't want these millennials stepping into the, the roles of, of directors and presidents and, and board members with the same wrong mindset that nonprofits have had to suffer from all these years. So I think like, you know, the fact that it took this long was maybe a good thing because if it would have, if he would have produced this documentary too early, it might've just kind of like missed the mark um, because right. his, his thought leadership has been out there. I mean, the TED talk was 2013, the book was out there, but was the world really ready for it? I'm, I'm going to say probably there weren't ready as ready until now. It's great to hear you say that. I, I believe the same thing that it's all about timing, right? We all have to be ready to hear the message and Everything that you just said rings true for me as well, which is that we're living, not only is there going to be like the greatest transfer of wealth from the older generation to millennials, uh, statistically, I don't even know what the number is, but it literally is being called the greatest transfer of wealth. And along with that, the greatest transfer of power with the younger people, millennials taking over and I would say that Dan's message, you know, both of us know him, but what I find is that he did not 
his message did not saturate the market and the broad market. So I would say, you know, if we could estimate together how many people in the nonprofit sector know about him, I would say for sure more than 50%. But is it more than 70%? I don't know. A big question mark. And I think that I I continue to find people who have never heard of him. Wow. And I'm shocked. But I'm not so shocked because even though he released a TED Talk on YouTube, the way the social media, you know, how social media was shared and consumed has changed so dramatically since he originally produced and distributed his original TED Talk. So I think that we're, we're living at a time where distribution, reach, and really being able to penetrate and satur- saturate the market with his message and his ideas, and like you said, change and shift worldview and perspectives, it is a ripe, ripe time for it. It's interesting because I wonder how you feel about this as a marketer. My concern about the film is that it's a 90-minute documentary and that that is a heavy lift to ask people to watch. I'm a huge social media fan and I'm immersed in it because for my work, I'll put the air quotes there, for my work, (laughs) but I find that... The other day, I watched a comedy special on Netflix, but the only reason why I watched it was because I saw an ad for it, like a clip on TikTok. And then I opened up Netflix and I watched it. It was really funny, but I realized as a media professional, I had like a profound moment that I had not been on Netflix in like over a month. And I, by the way, I'm not millennial. I'm older than millennial. <laughs> I wouldn't so, I really wouldn't have. <laughs> I just say that I have children who are basically in like the very end of the millennial uh, age. So, wow. So my demographic, like it's really, I know I'm unusual because I'm in the media space, but the fact that I hadn't opened up Netflix in such a long time and that I did and I, and I watched this 60-minute special makes me think a lot about the distribution strategy for this film because I'm so passionate and committed to making sure that the most people possible have the opportunity to hear its message and to reconsider how they think about the nonprofit sector and their relationship with the nonprofit sector. And so I think a lot about how are we going to get this out there and broadly consumed by the world living at the time we're living in, which is that it's, it's a heavy lift to get people to watch a 90 minute documentary. I definitely think that the challenge is in the marketing there, but I I think that the idea that the attention span of viewers has shrunk is not entirely true. I think that, yeah, we all like these like short firm, like Instagram reels and TikToks that are just super bite-sized. But I also know that there are those who will binge watch an entire series on Netflix the day it drops. So that's a pretty long attention span. So I think that, I guess the biggest challenge is pulling people in, having watched the screening, I can say once you're pulled in it, I can't imagine stopping. <laughs> like once you're sucked into this world of like all of hearing of all of these like really grave injustices, it may be like, you know, when you describe the idea of the documentary, you can't properly convey the gravity of the message that 
is actually given over when you watch it. So I think your challenge is in the marketing, but I think once you get someone to watch it, like I, I can't imagine they would want to stop. I think that the great thing is that I think that there is a hunger in my generation to do something about these type of things. Like there's a, we have um, more headspace maybe than the previous generations did to actually take on some of these challenges. Um, I think like when I grew up, parents worked nine to five, nine to seven, and they didn't really do much else besides raise their children. Like that, that, you know, that was it. They were good Jews. They were good parents and they went to work. What my kids are growing up with, I don't know anybody really who has nine to five jobs anymore. They're entrepreneurs, they're running businesses, they're in real estate or in, in nursing homes. And they're also very involved in their communities, in, in charitable causes and in, in things like that. So, you know, I think that's a, it's a kind of a sign of, of generational shifts where they're happy to hear about some of these things and then maybe get on board. So I think that really leaves us with the question of like, well, what can we do? What are we doing about it? Whether it's a, someone who actually works in the nonprofit space or just someone who's, you know, very involved in their community and nonprofits and is getting kind of, you know, lighting a fire under them by hearing all of this. So what are we telling them that they can do? Mm, the call to action. Yes. <laughs> As a marketer, I love that word. I know. So it's funny. We've been thinking a lot about the call to action and the call to action really for this film is to share the film. It is the beginning middle and end is to get as many people to watch this film as possible. And we believe that by doing so, it will generate conversations everywhere, in on boards, in nonprofits, in the world. Obviously, we'll have a press tour that's that's also supporting and advancing those conversations as well. However, you know, the goal of this film is to get people to watch the film. Where it goes after that, I think you've you've spoken really passionately about hopefully it'll light a fire. Hopefully it will spark people to read more of, of Dan's literature that he's written. And hopefully it will push people to really think and consider how they can um, do things differently, whether they're in the nonprofit, working in it, whether they're the lay leaders supporting the nonprofits, or whether they're the everyday people who are in the outside part of the ecosystem interfacing with the nonprofit. I think that, you know, what will come next will look different for all of those different players, but that just getting people to watch and share the film is really our call to action. It took us some time to get there because we were looking at, you know, the UN has like sustainability goals and they have these really big goals and then they have all these sub goals. So when they talk about, you know, environmentalism or whatever it is, they give you all of these different examples of small, easy things that people can do to contribute to environmental causes or whatever it is. We were just looking at it as an example and and got sucked in for a little while, which I know you can appreciate as a marketing person. Like sometimes you just have to go down a lot of different roads until you figure out which is the right path for you. And so we did go down some of those roads of like, what's our call to action? Maybe our call to action should be that everybody after they finish the movie goes and donates to overhead, you know, and we're going to have all this merch that says I'm overhead or I give to overhead. And we have all these great plans. And then we just got really focused and said, you know what? Our job is singular with this film. Our job is 
to focus on getting this film seen because we really do believe in its transformative power and we're sticking with it. I think that's that's genius and it's like seeming simplicity because the hardest thing I think that any marketer could be tasked with is changing people's minds. Like right. that, you know, getting someone to buy a t-shirt or whatever is one thing, but to take an entire population of people and actually change the way they think about something that has been deeply rooted since the Puritans, right? As, as anyone who watch, will watch the documentary will learn, um, that's, that's a huge ask. So it does make a lot of sense to me to say that, like, you know what, let's just get people to watch and if they watch it. And they, like, it's, there's a pretty good chance you're going to change their mind because it's so, so eye-opening. So I, I think that's amazing. And I, when it comes out, I will definitely be encouraging everyone I know to watch the whole thing in its entirety on 1x speed because that's <laughs> now that you can, you can speed things up, which I am guilty of. But when it's that important, I don't think you should. So I just want to bring this back to practical because, you know, for your audience on the documentary, you just want it to be wide. And I, I really, I, I think that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. But for the audience listening to this podcast, I do know that there are people listening to this podcast who do work with nonprofits on a day-to-day basis and maybe do have some potential to actually affect some real change. Do you have any advice, something practical that you can leave them with, um, you know, if they familiarize themselves with the things that we've talked about today and they feel that cause, what can they be doing about it? Listen, I think obviously get educated. So Dan Pallotta has his own website. And he has a lot to read. And so I would encourage, you know, before the movie is available, nobody has to wait to watch his TED Talk and to really get educated about what it means. But I think that at the core, what we're promoting and what I know that you support and and agree with, because we're both such enthusiastic fans of his work and ideology, is that it's a partnership. It's not us versus them or us and them you know, whether you're the nonprofit professional yourself, whether you're a board member, whether you're a donor, whatever role you play, just understanding that we are literally all in this together and behaving that way where it's not an us versus them. It's how can we operate more seamlessly and functionally? And even if you're the person getting paid to do the work or you're the person giving the money to let the people do the work to try to flatten out as much as possible these power dynamics which create this kind of like us versus them. They're so real, by the way, the power dynamics. I'm kind of obsessing about it recently and really seeing how it's not necessarily intentional. I'm not blaming anybody. It's just, it's there. And so doing whatever we can as a community to remove the power dynamics by how we treat each other, how we treat the nonprofits, I think that getting educated and engaged and working shoulder to shoulder as partners is really meaningful and will take some serious reflection on the part of the individuals, depending on what role they sit in, to see how can I try to flatten the power structures? How can I try to be a better partner? And by the way, I don't mean this only for philanthropists, because a lot of people will say, oh, she must be talking only about philanthropists. I think that sometimes, oftentimes, nonprofit professionals are very transactional with their donors and 
don't spend enough time really understanding what does cultivating respectful, meaningful relationships and engagement with my board or my donor community, what does that look like in an effort to help everybody feel like we're in this together? So I think it goes both ways and that to really look at that would make a huge difference in the work that we're all doing. Wow. This is really hard to wrap up because I feel like everything you just said, I could talk about for probably another couple of hours, but in the interest of keeping this, you know, relatively consumable, I'm going to end up with one question. So, you know, I did just ask you about, you know, the nonprofit leaders, but if you could let the greater Orthodox Jewish community at large, as a general population, not necessarily professional in any sense, but just as people who have most likely at some point either supported or taken from a nonprofit, or both, really. I mean, that, that's very viable too. If you can let them know one thing, one important thing that they should take away from just this conversation, what would it be? Wow. I feel so much pressure. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure <laughs> at all. I mean, it's really the same message, but I guess even underscored more because we have literally religious obligations to support each other. Amechad, Belevechad, we have to be one people. Kol Arivim like we're literally mandated Jewishly to be taking care of each other, which, by the way, is an added extra facet to all of this in terms of the power dynamics that. Orthodox Jews, Jews, and and I know other faith communities as well really believe that God graces us with whatever we have and asks us to take responsibility for the gifts we're granted and sharing it with the people who are less fortunate or don't have that. And so when we talk about you know, let's flatten out the power dynamics, let's work shoulder to shoulder. It's actually embedded in our religious tradition to believe that, that we have just been, we've been deputized to steward our gifts to help and uplift the people that need to be uplifted in our community. And it's not it's not because I'm such a great person for doing it. It's literally what I've been charged to do. Yes, you're a great person also. Yes, yes, yes. But it's part of our religious tradition. And I think that we know we're supposed to give. I don't, I think everybody, you know, we're, we're supposed to be charitable. We're supposed to be charitable. But the, the title of my film is called Uncharitable. And there's actually a lot of fighting about the title. I think it's brilliant. It's the name of Dan's book. And then we were like, oh, but it's so negative. Who's going to want to watch a movie that says uncharitable? What does that mean? But I think that you can actually be charitable and still be uncharitable in your charity. And I think, you know, in your giving, in your tzedakah. And I think that as a Jewish community and as an Orthodox Jewish community, which prides itself on really living the values, like in living and breathing our values, reminding ourselves that we need to be careful that we're never uncharitable in our charity and that we do everything we can to maintain that stance and that disposition that we are, I don't know the Pasuk, but the idea that giving is actually for our benefit, right? 
And I find that to be true in everything in my life, that when I give, I feel incredibly fortunate and the emotional impact that it has on me is so meaningful. And I, and I really understand why the idea that it actually is a gift to us. And so I would just say, you know, everybody's so busy and involved in so many charities. Like we have an amazing, how many gamachs, how many, I mean, it's incredible what we do as a Jewish community. It's, it's really Mika Amcha Yisrael. Like we are amazing, but to just remember how we treat the people who are doing the work, how we, how we approach it, that we're never uncharitable in our charitable giving, I think is something that would be felt by everybody. Wow. That was so beautifully said and, and really inspiring. So to that, on that note, um, if anybody does want to reach out to you, whether it's to discuss something about the film or your private work, where can they get in touch with you? Ooh, so you can find me everywhere. I would say the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm Dina Rabhan on LinkedIn, and you can message me there. That's my professional portfolio. We're not going to talk about the other places that I am where I do a lot of silly stuff, but my professional way to reach me is is on LinkedIn, and I am here to do all sorts of strategic work with nonprofits, also with foundations and philanthropists to help with their strategic giving, to help provide support with to the nonprofits that they're supporting. It's pretty broad. And for anybody who's interested in anything media and entertainment related, I do want to say that, and you you probably see this quite often, that they're people really mean well and they want to get on trends and they want to leverage media and social platforms to advance whatever it is that they're looking to put out there. And if you're not speaking to people who really understand those spaces, a lot of money is wasted. And I get very emotional about it in the nonprofit sector because I know how scarce resources are and that people... Uh, I encourage people to turn to people like you and to people like me who can give really solid advice, understanding the platforms to make sure that their their financial allocations, that their resource allocations are getting the most bang for their buck and not doing things that are circa 2010 because, you know, somebody came up with an idea that's not, it's not relevant anymore. And so I am here for that. And I'll always do it kindly and as charitable as a way as I can. And thank you so much for, for having me on. And I look forward to when the film is publicly available. And then we can just push me it too. out to everybody. And everybody can help be our part of our community of getting these ideas out to the world. Absolutely. Dina, thank you so much for doing this. This was really great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsevia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com.